0: You are tuned in to another edition of World of Noise right here on X-Ray FM and the X-Ray Podcast Network. I'm your host, Bob Ham. If you listen to the show regularly, you might remember a couple of weeks ago when I aired a kind of compilation episode featuring my, episode, my interviews with a couple of black artists as part of our response to the killing of George Floyd and our desire to amplify black voices in a world where so many of them are being permanently silenced. It was the right thing to do for the station, it was the right thing for me to do, and at first, I wanted to use that as fuel and a call to seek out more black guests for the show, something I noted earlier I've fallen short on since the start of this project, but the more I thought about it, the more I came to realize that the voice you need to hear least on the airwaves of this station, and through your podcast service, is my own. I already have another show here on X-Ray, and have a busy career as a journalist, and To put it bluntly, I'm a straight white male in my 40s. You hear from my kind more than enough. As the weeks wore on, I decided the smartest thing for me to do was to stop doing this show and encourage X-Ray to fill this space with the voices of Black, Indigenous, or other producers and DJs of color or those that are part of the LGBTQ community. We have a decent representation of both on the airwaves of X-Ray, but the balance still skews pretty hard on the side of folks like me. The bottom line is that this will be the final episode of World of Noise. I have really enjoyed producing this show and talking to the dozens of folks that I have for the 20-plus episodes that I've done to date. Uh, But it's time to let Portland's marginalized communities take the helm and time for me to do what I can to make sure that they get heard. I thank you all for tuning in when you did tune in or subscribing to the podcast and the kind words that I received about the show it's truly been a lot of fun so with that out of the way let's start this the final episode of world of noise if you are a serious political junkie you might recognize the name kristen granger she spent two years serving as governor kate brown's communications director and until last year she had been working in academia but 2020 was supposed to be the year that she went all in on her music career. Kristen has been a part of the Americana scene for years as a solo artist and as a member of various groups, but in recent years, her focus has been on Kristen Granger and True North, a wonderful folk bluegrass ensemble that she leads with her husband, Dan Wetzel. They both recently left their respective day jobs and were set to do the work of promoting their new album, Ghost Tattoo, when, as is the case with so many musicians, the global pandemic shut everything down on them. Hopefully they'll get the chance now that things are opening up slowly because this is music that deserves a proper showcase. Kristen and Bill's quartet has the well-worn comfort of great acoustic music and unapologetically take on political and social topics in and around those tunes that have a more spiritual or personal bent. With the new album out this month and already scoring some great reviews from No Depression and American Blues Scene, I thought I would reach out to Kristen and Bill from their home in Salem to talk about their project and the inspiration behind some of the incredible material on the new record, Ghost Tattoo. Kristen Granger, Dan Wetzel, thank you so much for being on World of Noise today.
1: Happy to be here.
0: How are you both faring in the midst of this strange time we're living in?
1: Well, in a lot of ways, we feel a little bit like we've been dropped off a cliff in terms of our music pursuits because, um, you know, the weeks before the quarantine happened, we'd been, you know, working on a record that's about ready to be released. And also we had been cast in this hilarious play in Salem called uh, Midsummer at this alternative theater and we're, we're just going a hundred miles an hour. It felt like every day we were just, you know, adrenaline from morning till night. And then the play ended on a Saturday. The following Thursday we were supposed to get on a plane to go to Ireland for a five, seven show tour and it got, and the Everything. quarantine happened Wednesday. Yes, yeah. so, yeah. And that was the end of that. So we came literally to a screeching halt. <laughs>
0: Wow, that's that's terrible. I mean, but uh, had you had any other shows around that uh, beyond that Ireland tour that got ended up getting? canceled? Oh yeah, Thir-
1: thirty-seven yeah. shows have been canceled between now and the end of July, and that's festivals and um, and booking dates all over uh, the West besides the the Ireland tour. So yeah, we we were booked all the way through. September and had kind of been we needed to to take a break in October for some other reasons and so we were had lots of shows on the books and and they're all well if you looked at our our calendar you'd see they all say postponed Um, a few say canceled we hope that that we're rescheduling a lot of them actually so that's good
0: yeah I just wonder though if is, is music your sole source of income or I imagine you two have jobs outside of this
1: well, we <laughs> not having our crystal ball was up on blocks in the front yard, apparently. <laughs> we missed that 2020 was going to be a banner year for working in the yard. <laughs> and um, so we both left our grown up jobs. Um, Dan was a custom home builder and had his own company and did that for many years. And I left um, kind of a higher education and politics combined career, and I, um, it, you know, it, with the intent to do nothing but write and play music. So, yeah, again, that dropped off a cliff thing is we what had, we're feeling we right had, now.
2: We had booked more jobs than ever because we were available to do so, both to book them and to play them, and we just thought, well oh, this will be a great year to really go much more full-time into music, and, and, uh, and then it just all, we still have some jobs that haven't canceled <laughs> in September and October, but there's just no telling you know, by then what will happen and, and not very many, the bulk of them were through the summer. So, wow. We'll see.
1: There's a lot of discussion. Probably you're hearing it too, Bob, about what is the future of live music. Right. And and is it going to be that a certain percentage of people are never going to venture into public to hear music. They'll always be online viewers and do all venues now need to accommodate kind of an online audience, which provides greater opportunity for ticket sales. But, but a completely different experience, certainly an inferior, in my view, an inferior experience. So um, everybody I know in music is talking about this and what's next. And I don't think anybody's got any answers, but it is. A, there's a lot of talk.
0: There's a lot to think about there. But is that something that you guys have ventured into, the, the world of performing online and doing a live stream?
1: Absolutely. Uh, we've done three, four now, three four, and then, yeah, not- and then people have invited us to to perform on their live streams. And uh, we've been FaceTimed in by um, We Banjo 3. And I mean, we, we've done a variety of different things. We did a fundraiser for CASA, the Court Appointed Special Advocates Program, because Dan is a CASA. And um, and raised like 5,000 bucks in in 40 minutes. It was great. <laughs> so, wow. So yeah, it's, it, it's it's a weird experience as an, as an artist, as you probably know. It's just odd because you... You play your music, and you—you you, there are comments that can be seen, but generally speaking, you're tuning or trying to figure something else out, so you're not looking at the comments. So it's a, it's a very strange inter, um, interface, but at the same time, it is a way, it's a, I guess, a, um, a, a far second to a live performance. It's better than not performing at all.
0: Absolutely. So yeah, it's interesting. Just I've talked to other people on this show about that, just that weird disconnect that you get into where you can't interact with an audience at all, not in the way that you would traditionally do, and that's got to feel very
2: uncomfortable at times. Well, it's but, just so strange, yeah. So many things we do are, are just built around that feedback and, and, uh, of, of several emotions, and when, when you're just trying to imagine that that's happening somewhere in space, it's, it's, a, different, it's a different level of, of pulling that off. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, let's go back to the beginning of this project and, and uh, I'm imagining and correct me if I'm wrong, that this was built out of the relationship and you two meeting uh, because you are husband and wife. Is that, is that the case? That is, that the, is case. the case. Yes. Well, how did you two meet then?
1: Well, we met in a band,
0: of course. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right. Yeah. A couple different bands. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, Dan was playing uh, with a bluegrass band called New Moon in Portland. And um, and I was playing with a, a women kind of f- f- folky country. I don't know what you'd call it. It was, a, it was a party band. It was a fun band called the Bitch Creek Nymphs. And I told you I wouldn't actually say that on the radio. And then I just went and said it, didn't I? <laughs> with, with a band named after a fishing fly. And um, so... He, his band opened for my band and then my band opened for his, his band and then his band broke up and then my band made a record and was on the verge of breaking up because it's sort of like you know a dysfunctional family without the unconditional love there in the studio and uh, we ended up being um, kind of thrown together in in uh, finishing the record and getting it because you
2: guys asked me to record with you
1: yeah I yeah. did some mandolin tracks on the record and then he played with us too until yeah. we finally wow. just just exploded but um but that that happens with bands and it's no big deal but fortunately the uh relationship sustained we decided we wanted to continue to play music together and then we fell in love so
2: oh, that's I'm, wonderful yeah it wonderful. It was pretty great we're pretty lucky we never have to check with our spouse to say yes to a gig or you know we just look at each other and go shall we do this so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah it makes accommodations a little cheaper too
2: yeah. i'll bet
0: um, was uh the style of music you're playing now it's this very you know bluegrass folk americana was that uh sort of always what you wanted to do and where you wanted to direct your energies as far as music goes and i don't mean just this this project but you know individually before you guys met was this sort of what you always wanted to do
2: so i i was uh Kind of pre bluegrass, I was. I was more just kind of singer songwriter. Um, did a lot of solo work years and years ago. Um, all always acoustic and um, singer. You know, wrote some things and and took them on the road doing like the college circuit and things. And you know, I always in the back of your mind, everybody wants to be a rock star, and and those those things are great to imagine and think about. But my talent it, it is not toward that it's definitely toward the more acoustic side of things and the more more organic side and that's what always spoke to me and that translated well toward bluegrass when i met people doing that and and i started to to build instruments that were in that genre and so that became just organically what spoke to me more and then when i met kristen she was she could sing basically any genre will we'll go out and people will recognize her and say come on, sing with this you know 70s rock cover band and she'll know every song so she'll do that and can pull that off but y'all let you speak about what your your passions are musically
3: yeah
1: I, I think um i was really drawn to this genre because of the organic sound of the instruments i liked I liked how um, simple yet complex it was, uh, and I also love the sound of acoustic guitars and mandolins and fiddles and, and an acoustic bass, and I know how much music you can get out of just these four instruments and people's voices. I also am a lyrics person, I'm a, a poet by education and training, and and I want to be able to Have those come across, and not just hear them, because there's plenty of rock bands and punk bands where you can definitely hear the lyrics. It's not bad. It's it's they have to come across the way I I intend them to come across, and and this seems to be the best fit for those those that kind of uh, experience that I'm trying to both deliver and have myself.
0: In the press notes for your new record, Ghost Tattoo, though, it said that, you, Kristen, that you didn't start writing songs until you were in your 30s.
1: That's true. I didn't really start writing songs until Dan and I met and, and fell in love. I, I think um, I had always been a poet and I'd been a musician. I played the piano. I played the ukulele, um, learning to play the guitar, Play the guitar badly. Um, but I, and I'd always been a singer, been a, usually the front singer in whatever band I was in, but I never really had the, um, I never really had a story to tell. I never had anything to say. I really love poetry. I love well-written poetry and, um, consumed a lot of it, but wasn't, you know, didn't really have that depth of experience for a long time. And, um, one of the producers on our, our former record said, "You really can't sing until you've had your heart good and broken," and I and I do believe that um, that you have to have some life experience, you have to have something to say, and there are plenty. Uh, there's plenty of people who who play really well, but their lyrics don't make don't really aren't really compelling, and plenty of people have great compelling lyrics, but their their musicianship is rudimentary, meat and potatoes, and. That's the great thing about Dan and me and with the, the two guys we play with is that there's a lot of complexity and there's a lot of, um, of skill to back up the stories that I feel like I was ready to tell. And Dan created a safe space for me to tell those in a way that had not existed before.
0: You also said in the press release that songwriting kind of comes easy to you now. Is that true?
1: Oh my I, that's a relative phrase. I mean, it's easier than some things and harder than other things. But I think what it comes to me, words come to me all the time. I don't feel like I don't, that there's no observation. There's nothing that I can share that, you know, not all songs are, are works of art. But I don't have any problem um, putting together three verses, a bridge, and a chorus um, based on a story. And there's plenty of human frailty to inform any number of, of good stories for songs.
0: The original material that is on the new record Ghost Tattoo, uh, some of it has a very political bent to it. Um, does that mode of songwriting come very naturally to you? Is this part of this story, these human, this human frailty you want to uh, you know embody in your music?
1: Yeah, I think having worked in politics for 15 years, um, I've seen a lot of, of different sides of issues. And I know that everybody wants those issues to be black and white, but there's so much gray and, stri- and, and striations of gray. It's not, it's not easy to, to pinpoint a right and a wrong in some of these things. But there are some things that are intrinsically wrong. And there are, there are always going to be um, economies of scale are going to be, you know, pe- poor people and, and marginalized people and people with no voice. Um, and I think songs do a lot to bring those to the fore. And we count on them. I mean, I think the world counts on art and artists to um, present issues and difficult situations in ways that people can manage, that they can access, that they can process. Uh, and I think that that's, that's also informed some of my songwriting.
0: I wanted to talk about a couple of these original songs on the album, and I think the most impactful of the bunch is "Ghost of Ablu." Uh, I'm not going to pronounce the name correctly, so maybe you could do that one for me.
1: <laughs> sure, "Ghost of Abuelito."
0: Thank you. So, uh, what? what can you-
1: for grandpa. Yeah, I'll say that again. It's Spanish for "grandpa." It's right. like the diminutive of grandfather. Okay. Um, abuelo is your grandfather, and abuelito is your grandpa.
0: Okay. Well, what can you tell us about that song?
1: In back in June of 2019, uh, there was a major media story about children being separated from their physically separated from their parents at the U.S.-Mexico border and kept in detention. And uh, that that news was all over uh, the the media. Uh, it happened that one of the people that was just that discovered that this was happening was part of an inspection team. Has been a longtime friend of mine. She's a labor- Professor Willamette. and um, she was talking to me about what she saw and the uh, unspeakable conditions in which these children lived. It was very uh, upsetting, frankly. And she spoke to the media. She's probably the one that's quoted most often in the media. And Neil Young came out and commanded to all artists: "This is what you do is you step up and you create art that will." that will compel people to pay attention and hopefully take action. And the the um, inspectors who went to the detention centers at the border interviewed hundreds of children in custody and then posted those redacted testimonies online at, um, I think it's called projectamplify.org, where you can read those transcripts. They've been redacted to a certain extent, but you can read the transcripts of what the, the children said. And I read them and... Some of them, and I, and I felt it became increasingly clear that the children had no idea why this was happening to them or what was going on. And some of them, in fact, denied that they were even in the United States, that they couldn't believe that this, the United States would do this. And so they must be in some other place. That has nothing to do with the United States, and um, you know some of them are quite young. And I'm sure you heard the, the media accounts for these horrible conditions in which they were kept, and and the, their own deteriorating health, and and um, their intense anxiety, and being surrounded by crying 24 hours a day. That it that they had to develop these coping skills, and so based on those that testimony, I wrote this song from the children's point of view um, that they really are just trying to get through it. And they're doing whatever they can just to get through it.
0: It's a very powerful song and I'm so glad that you wrote that one. Well, thank you. Uh, Another song uh, that speaks to uh, an important issue is the song, She Flies With Her Own Wings. Uh, And I wonder if you could tell us about that one as well.
2: Well,
1: sure. Um, That song uh, grew out of, I guess, you know, a lifelong awareness of the um, difference between how girls and women lead and solve problems and how boys and men lead and solve problems. And and I assume that, I don't want to say every man does this and every woman does that, because I don't believe that. But in my experience... That I've What I've seen is that, that women tend to work in teams. They tend to be collaborative. They seem to be less interested in credit or blame um, or rescuing, for that matter. They seem more interested in, let get some stuff done. Let's check some boxes. And I can speak from personal experience. I um, worked in politics for a long time and worked for really bright, evolved, wonderful men leaders, and I also had the opportunity to be communications director for Governor Kate Brown for two years, and um, we went through some amazing craziness during that time. If you remember, there was um, a crisis because the governor resigned, and she stepped in from Secretary of State to the governor's role. Unexpectedly, there was um, Unprecedented uh, floods and wildfires that summer, followed by the um, occupation, forty-one day occupation of a national wildlife refuge, uh, the first college campus shooting—all of those things happened within the first um, eighteen months of my of my uh, coming on board of her governor's uh, her administration. So I I got to be in the middle, literally in the middle of uh, the government's response to all of these things and then watching her um, since working on the COVID-19 issues and where you're just getting criticized no matter what you do, but working working tirelessly to bring the right people together to solve or address problems and try to do that um, you know, within a reasonable time frame and with reasonable budgets and all that sort of things. Anyway, I've just I just noticed that that her way of doing things and um, Elizabeth Warren and uh, Ruth Bader-Ginsburg, these women have come to light and come to positions of power after a long struggle to where they are and doing things their way in spite of pressures to, to act more like men, to rule or lead more like men, and to to be more like men. And they have persisted in being themselves and doing things their way and getting a lot of good things done. So that's why I wrote that song. And I wrote it for Kate, but I also wrote it for my daughter and your daughter and everybody's daughter coming up looking for um, looking for a path forward and knowing that even if there isn't a path and you have to, you have to make a path that that's worth doing
0: on the new album ghost tattoo uh by yourselves and your band true north uh outside of the originals is a nice selection of cover tunes in the mix Um, how do you go about choosing what songs to cover what do you look for in a song that you think would work well with yourselves in this project
1: well, i I Dan Dan as to, um, I look for a story. I look for a compelling story, and I also want um, a song that we can either um, that we can arrange in a way that it's not precisely like the way it was delivered originally. so that I wouldn't say it improves it, but it's a different take on someone else's, Um, original composition. So I'm looking for musicality that is compatible with what we think we can do with it. And I'm looking for a story.
2: Yeah, I think, think, I think that's, that's well summarized. We, we don't, we, 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 there are a lot of great songs to cover and there are a lot of great songs that were done in an original way that it would be redundant to do that again. Um, But songs speak to us often that are written by somebody else just like the ones that are written by Kristen. And, and when they really speak to us, we end up wanting to play them. And then if, if we feel like it really holds up as something that's unique to us because of the way we've arranged it, then, um, then we'll think about recording it. You know, a lot of people will request a certain song or something and we'll think, yeah, we should, we should make this available. And our, our version of it is enough different from the original that we're not just copying something that's, that's already been done because, sometimes just the way Kristen will deliver it vocally or the way we'll arrange it with time signature or chord progression um, can really put a different mood on a song. And, And sometimes people will go back and reviewers, especially will go back and listen to the original and say, wow, this is quite different. I actually like this better. It emotionally brought this up and the original version didn't, which doesn't make ours a better song. It just means we're going a different direction with it. So we're looking for a way to, to convey what is speaking to us about it and whether it's written by Kristen or somebody else.
0: Yeah. The press notes for the album uh, also says that the members of true North outside of yourselves, uh, which is Martin Stevens who plays mandolin and fiddle and bassist Josh Atkins, They live in different parts of Oregon. Is that right?
3: Yeah.
1: Well, Martin lives in Vancouver, but um, I see. But Josh and Josh lived in Portland for a long time, but just uh, moved back to Salem. So he's he lives here, and uh, and then they all sing. Everybody sings in the band. So we often have we regularly have three part harmony. Sometimes we even have four on many songs.
0: Well, even even with Josh living in Salem now, I mean, is it an easy thing to sort of maintain the momentum of a of a project like this when you're not able to just be around each other all the time? And is it difficult? (laughs) It's a challenge. challenge.
1: We, I mean, we, we, it's you can't really even practice over, you know, FaceTime. It's just very. There's always these delays and problems with it. So we, um, we are looking forward to this phase opening up again, um, where we can we can practice at least be in the same room and if, and if we're six feet apart or we're have masks on for part of it or something like that. Um, because it, it, we, we really miss it. It's, it's difficult to do. It's a must be present to win situation. Some
2: of the, some of those shows that were postponed were, were the ones we typically set up when we're getting ready to release an album. We'll have three or four different album release shows, you know, near one, one was in Salem, one in Portland, one in Seattle, one in Eugene. And, And they were just great venues. We were really looking forward to them. And that's where we introduced the record. And a lot of people come and buy them and take them home. And, you know, none of that could happen in this case. So we're sending it out digitally and selling copies off the website. But that's quite different.
0: It really is. So how did you two meet Martin and Josh and invite them into the fold?
1: Uh, Well, so the Bluegrass community is is pretty networked and close and you it gets to where you're going to these festivals either you're playing them or you're going to watch the festivals um up and down i-5 corridor and into uh eastern oregon and washington and um, idaho and montana and you see a lot of these bands and you watch these you know people switch go to this band or they were in that band for a while and that band breaks up and they get together it's a very it's a very fluid sort of community and we watched uh, martin and josh um in a band called the bluegrass regulators fantastic band but all kind of college age at the time and everybody you know dispersed to the four winds after graduation um and martin is a fantastic uh, he's a fiddle champion and a fantastic mandolin player. He's a beautiful, beautiful voice. And um, we'd been thinking for a long time, boy, it'd be great to play in a band with Martin. So we, we invited him to come pick a little bit and ask him if he wanted to, to play with us, and he did. And we said, do you know a bass player? And he said, Josh Adkins, who is somebody we've known for a long time too. So um, we are excited to be able to play with these two high-quality, high-energy guys, super talented. Yeah.
0: Well, do you both have any sense of what comes next for this project or plans for the future that makes sense right now?
1: Well, what we're doing is we've set our sights on 2021, and in the hopes that that either there's a vaccine or the music industry and venues and everything have adapted to be able to book uh, gigs again. And we don't. We're not. We're not writing off 2020 as a as a you know as a done and over because we still have some shows on the books, but we're really trying to um, to release Ghost Tattoo so that people can hear it and it gets and it gets airplay, and then people are going to be interested in booking us starting in January. That's the goal.
2: And meanwhile, we're we're sending it out to radio stations and and getting interviews like the one we're happy to have with you right this moment and uh hope to get some good reviews and things like that because that really helps us get the get the word out there too and people can order it that way or download it or whatever they choose to do in terms of the medium um just to get it out digitally and and physically
1: i mean we, we really just we just want to play <laughs> we do <laughs> to be honest
0: <laughs> The new album from Kristen Granger and True North Ghost Tattoo is out on June 19th to uh, pick up a copy of the record right now and to keep track of what the band is doing in the future. Go to truenorthband.com. You can also find them on Facebook and Instagram. Kristen Granger, Dan Wetzel, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank
2: you. Our pleasure.
1: Thanks, Bob.
0: Without realizing it, I hit on an inadvertent theme for this week's show, as my next guests, Rachel and Matt of the dream pop group Phosphine, are also husband and wife. But in this case, the band takes something of a backseat to the work that the couple does outside of the music world. Uh, Rachel is an illustrator and graphic designer, and Matt does post-production video work. But when they put their creative talents to bear on their music, they really give it their all. The group's new album, Lotus Eaters, which is set to be released on July 7th, is rich, syrupy, anchored by Rachel's earthy yet ghostly vocals and a swirling atmosphere that they created with their friend Greg Francis down in Oakland. And as it is with so many groups that feature a married couple at their core, there's an internal comfort and warmth that arises out of each song. I spent some time on the phone with Rachel and Matt to talk about how Phosphine came to be, how they pushed themselves to experiment with songwriting on Lotus Eaters, and how the current political climate became an unexpected inspiration on their work. Rachel and Matt of Phosphine, thank you so much for being on World of Noise today.
3: Of course, we're happy to be here.
0: Yeah. The day that we're taping this, this is the day before Multnomah County opens or enters into Phase 1 of the state's reopening plan. And it feels like it's been a long road to get here. How have you two been holding up amidst this pandemic and the shelter-at-home order?
4: Well, it's been pretty... Strange, considering uh, our situation, we're both remote freelancers. Uh, Rachel is a graphic designer and illustrator uh, at day, and I'm also a motion graphics artist and video editor. So most of our work was already scheduled and planned. So we were already used to being cooped up at home, you know, for most of the week. And uh, obviously, we play music together too. So it hasn't been as drastic, I'd say.
3: Yeah, I think. we've just become bigger homebodies than we already were. Um, I think the one big interruption as it relates to music is just not being able to go into our practice space, which compared to what a lot of other people are dealing with is such a small fry problem. But um, yeah, we we have been missing playing music in our regular space. I'm sure Matt's been missing an actual drum set. He has this uh, kind of... Plasticky rubber kit, but it doesn't really cut it if you're a drummer. Um, You know, I'm, I'm a little bit luckier in that. Uh, I, I'm definitely comfortable practicing on acoustic, and that's not so much of an issue. I mean, it's nice to be plugged in when you can be, but uh, it's, you know, I can still get my stuff done a bit more.
4: Yeah, mine's more equivalent to, you know, just like loving a bike ride outdoors and being stuck on some all the time. Darker language but uh, it, it, it's odd but we also realize how privileged we are in the situation that like we both have work you know we're we're doing just fine and stable I think it's just again what Rachel said like missing the stimulus of like actually jamming and writing music but also you know seeing your friends in person
3: yeah and family too mm-hmm
0: as anyone listening may have picked up by now that uh, if you're unfamiliar with phosphine, that, you know, you, Rachel and Matt are not only bandmates, but you are husband and wife. Uh, so I want to hear the story of how you two met.
3: Yeah. That's, that's a good story. Oh, um, good. Yes. Yeah, so let's <laughs> see. It was, it was almost 12 years ago now. Uh, we both transferred to the same college in California, um, San Francisco State University, and... Interestingly enough, both of our we both took this sophomore English class at our other colleges before we transferred and somehow both of our credits got screwed up, so we ended up in this uh, we essentially had to take sophomore English again because it didn't it didn't work out. So at juniors. At ju- as juniors, it, that part is not very important, but uh, <laughs> Yeah, it was funny, because this happened to a lot of transfers that came in. Um, So there were probably like 25 of the same class, and we happened to end up in the same one. And I think school had been in session for at least a month or a month and a half. Um, And eventually Matt and I ended up partnering up on an assignment, and that's when we first started talking.
4: It was interesting, because the assignment we had to partner up on uh, was each person before class had to pick their favorite lyrics uh, from a song. And we were going to go in and basically do like some song exploder analysis. And they needed you to team up with someone. And I'm just like the classic introvert who's like hanging in the pocket corner of the class and doesn't talk to anyone. So I, I just spotted Rachel. I was like, she seems kind. So <laughs> <laughs> she-, she actually came in with some fantastic uh, Nina Simone lyrics and me, Unfortunately, at the time, uh, I came in with some AFI sing to lyrics, so <laughs> uh, a little more emo, uh, less dignified. Uh, but yeah, pretty much, we became best friends uh, two, for the following two years, and we even roomed together as platonic roommates. And then it was like 2010. That's when we realized, oh, actually, I'm crushing on each other. And uh,
3: yeah, so we were both kind of dating people. At- at different times and it was the classic thing of timing not really speaking up but um in that effect we got to really bond as friends and have all like the the first roommate type of fight so getting all that stuff out of the way and then go figure we moved it out of that apartment and we're both finally single at the same time and it was like two idiots were some,
4: something <laughs> like oh duh saying <laughs> there's a chance <laughs> but uh it, and we already knew about the fact we each played music but uh i mean this is the only band i've ever been in you know i, I actually somehow avoided being in a band throughout all of uh you know my formative years and being a teenager because everyone was really into like at least the town i grew up in everyone was really into like you know death metal or screamo and i wasn't really vibing on either of those so it's pretty crazy that it took me you know until my mid-20s to really actually just sit in a room with someone and play
0: was it fairly obvious from the beginning of your friendship even that making music together was going to be part of this
3: I think so. I think um, it was more a logistical thing where we were in school and we weren't really in the mode of having a place to practice or a friend with a place to practice. So, you know, sometimes like we'd go out to your parents' place, uh, you know, an hour away from school and that's where you'd have your drum set. But uh, I think it wasn't until we had a friend who had a practice space where we could actually fully place play out, um, you on an actual drum set instead of a practice bad me with like a plugged in guitar where we started realizing, Oh, like it seems like things are kind of moving. Um, I had, I had been, uh, performing more in sort of open mic settings back in college. I was more into, uh, kind of folky, uh, indie folk music. Um, and so that's kind of where my roots were. And then once we became friends, we sort of uh, had a lot of stuff in common as far as our music tastes were concerned. Um,
4: but we, we were also turning each other on to uh, new artists, and I thought that made it even uh, wider Venn Diagram, because we, you know, for instance, I, I was getting Rachel more into Interpol. She was getting me into Nico Case. We were sort of like swapping like folk for post-punk and all these other influences. And I think that really helped, too, because that was happening right as we were starting to move into practicing together. And I think like the more shared influences you have, just the more natural it is to just go into a space um, and just try to create from scratch.
0: What then has become the songwriting process within this project, within Phosphine? Is it one of you leading the charge or is it still very collaborative?
3: Uh, that's a great question. It's, it's always been very collaborative and it's been interesting to see it kind of morph over the years. Um, because initially, I think, me being the guitarist, I would come in and start a lot of the guitar riffs or uh, things that we would base the song off of, but I think over the years, as as we've kind of become more comfortable as a band and started to switch roles a bit, Matt stepped more into um, writing the instrumentation and actually a lot of the songs off the upcoming record Uh, Started off as his rips, but he's always been uh, the main lyricist most often, I would say.
4: Yeah, it's it's an interesting process because uh, between the three of us, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, Kevin, uh, who's our bassist and also occasional guitarist, uh, is back in Bay Area still. But, you know, as Rich said, initially she was like primarily the one leading the charge on guitar. She always does the vocal melodies um so some things haven't changed in that regard like I've always been doing lyrics which is a fun back and forth honestly because she comes up with the wordless melodies then I just listen to them in headphones for hours and just you know write based off of that but as we got more comfortable as a, as a trio that's when we would actually do this literal musical chairs where you know if we, if we like had half of a song done but maybe we were stuck then Rachel gets on the drums, and I go on guitar. Or, you know, like, Kevin switches on lead guitar, and then I mess around on bass. It was really refreshing, because you don't ever want to get a little too stagnant or comfortable, and I think it's a challenging way to, you know, switch up. I mean, that's why some of our song structures are different, is because we actually switched instruments after the verse into the chorus, and then into the bridge. So, in short, it is collaborative. I think we have defined roles, but, like, we're always open to just trying something different.
2: Mm
4: -hmm. Let's talk
0: about the new album, Lotus Eaters. Uh, You said in a note that comes along with the record that's on Bandcamp that you wrote a lot of this material in and around the 2016 election. And it sounds like it was really difficult for you both to find the focus to actually create something. Is that true?
3: I think so. I think, um, you know, kind of like we mentioned in that note, songwriting is usually kind of our place of solace and as is playing music in general. But I think, um, you know, following that election, we just entered this period of turmoil that never seemed to stop. You know, it, it seems like whether it was every week or every month, you know, as soon as people thought they were coming up rare, the next thing would happen. And, um, I think it, it would ebb and flow for some of us, but, you know, I can speak for myself that sometimes it would put me in in a state where, yeah, I didn't feel like I was particularly
4: inspired. Yeah, it's it's the kind of dread and malaise that just washes over you each day. And it's not to like necessarily say like we fulk around in it, but, you know, comparatively with what's happening right now with, you know, George Floyd and this whole movement of Black Lives Matter, uh, it's really difficult to try to commit your mind and energy elsewhere when you realize something at large is happening and you want to be a part or engaged. So like, it's not natural for us to just say, well, shucks, let's just hole up, you know, for four hours on a Sunday and try to write a pop song. Um, We love doing it, but there are some times where you just, you need to step away. So it took a lot of focus first to like regroup and actually commit to finishing, finishing song.
0: What helped push you both through?
3: I think, um, you no, do you want to take that first
4: yeah i mean honestly we don't ever like to quit things we start um that's that's just a general motif i think when this was happening you know like i said there's a sort of malaise we had for first leg of things but after a while you know we don't like to just give up on something so you just have to talk to each other and communicate and just honestly it's doing the little things like just letting kevin know that hey, we did schedule time this Sunday. Let's just go in. I know none of us feel like we want to create anything. And those were actually the most fruitful sessions because you come in and initially there's like a fog hanging over. But then the more you just play and you, you just work with each other, I think it's, it's actually kind of like therapy. You know, yeah. catharsis.
3: I was going to compare it to exercise or like the idea of going for a run. It's like the last thing you want to do the morning of. But once you're out there, And especially afterwards, you can kind of recognize how much it does for you uh, personally and mentally. And I think we also just believed in some of the songs that we were making. And um, one thing that was more present towards, you know, the end of 2017, early 2018, was Matt and I had kind of formalized our decision to move up here to Portland. And so that sort of put... um, kind of a deadline on some of these songs, considering that our time in the Bay was, was limited and we were trying to wrap up this album before we moved up here. Um, so I think it's always good when you can kind of self-impose a deadline and really try to stick to it.
4: Yeah. That was insane deadline though. And that summer we decided to record Lotus Eaters, get married and move to Portland. Wow. They're just take care of all the major life
3: events yeah
0: I'm surprised you guys can still you know form complete sentences after that that sounds insane <laughs> it,
3: it took a little while afterward definitely had to relearn <laughs> language <laughs>
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I want to hear more about how you talk about in this statement that accompanies the record about how you went about experimenting with songwriting and performance uh, with this project. And I think you touched on that a, a little bit, Matt. But uh, yeah, I, I know there's uh, a lot of new elements you've kind of added to these songs. And I wonder if you could tell us about those.
4: Yeah, no, um, absolutely. I think with the song there are some I can immediately call out like incandescent plumes where that song started, uh, with me on guitar, Kevin on drums and, uh, Rachel on bass. And then, you know, we just sort of embraced the idea more of just making everything when it comes to composition and songwriting, a giant carousel, you know, so then we switch in the verse to the chorus. So then I'm back on drums and then Rachel gets in on guitar and then Kevin's on space because we all write so differently. And I think with this record, we utilize that because if I had to categorize it, Kevin, our bass player, he is the most technically proficient and um, sound person. If we're writing something, he knows the keys and the scales. He's like the guy you can go to if you need to figure out like what we need to do to finish part of uh, a section in a song. And Rachel's a nice hybrid where, like, you have that theory, but you also have a looseness and intuition you will let guide your process. And I am on completely other spectrum with, like, the 1.7 GPA um, uneducated <laughs> person in the room where I'm, like, theory. And I'll, I, do, I do the things that sometimes drive them insane where uh, I just put a capo on the fifth fret, and then I just make up random chords because I thought it's an interesting shape. Um, So then when they're trying to learn it, Rachel is very, she's learned to be very patient with me. (laughs) So the case in point is, exactly, so like with this record, like we embrace those, those strengths and weaknesses we each have. And I think we tried to just, instead of, like we have a song, Cocoon, we released back in January. That's one of those where we thought about, typically where we might put a third uh, section in there or we might do something like go into the chorus again. That's where just like, we just chopped it up and thought it might be, why don't we try something different? Like we just extended it into spoken word poetry outro. And there are other, other songs I'm sure you can speak to Rachel, like Incinerate or others were just playing around.
3: Yeah, I think we tried to just trust our intuition more on some of these songs and tried to follow what felt fun. Um, like on incinerate, it just sort of devolves into this sort of crash and burn at the end with this, uh, guitar solo that sort of is always leading upward and you're just kind of hearing this rumble and rumble and a build, um, I'm trying to think of some of the other songs.
4: And even just things like spiral, there there are songs in there where we really just wanted to focus on how can we, uh, build a climax. Like how can we have build an ebb and flow and a major release? I think in each of our songs we want that feeling because I think our favorite bands, even some that seem subtle like the national, I think our favorite songs is because there's this build up or tension. Yeah. And then it's released and that's like the most uh, euphoric thing you can feel in the song.
3: Yeah. And I think we also had kind of a unique opportunity with uh the recording on this one. Um the engineer and the producer, Greg is uh one of our best friends and he he just really understood these songs and we were we had the luxury of really taking our time and pushing the songs like even further than we had originally imagined, uh, when we were practicing them. Um so I think that was to our benefit as well.
4: Definitely.
0: Again, you're releasing this album during a very strange time in our world. And I know you've talked a little bit earlier in the interview about your frustrations at not being able to get to your practice space and, and play music. But is it also frustrating to not be able to play shows right now, to get out there and promote Lotus Eaters?
3: Definitely. Um, yeah, we were we had some exciting ideas in the works for a release show. Um, you know, We were hoping to have uh, Kevin, our bandmate, come up for the show and, um, just make it more of a, a bigger deal than, you know, just your average, uh, weekday performance. But, uh, you know, we, we feel we're trying to focus on how, how lucky we are, not just as musicians, but as people, um, to just be able to have this outlet period and to be able to share it with people. And I think one thing I've, I've seen, in this difficult time is, um, I think, uh, people are really clutching on to, to music and creative stuff in a way that maybe they haven't in a while because we've all been so cooped up and, you know, I think, I think there's a hunger that maybe hasn't been, um, so prescient before.
4: Yeah. And I I do going back to, you know, your, your question, I, we do miss the communal experience. Um, there are obviously different ways you can bond with people when you share things, you know, through digital means. And we've, I mean, that's where we've had, honestly, some of the kindest experiences, you know, just people from, like, someone from Italy or Berlin just, you know, we found out, just bought an album, and then wrote us an unsolicited letter about how much they enjoy the music. Um, but it is really difficult at times to not just be able to convene, you know, like and, and even do things you want, like where art can connect to activism, like, putting together a show where you can put all your proceeds toward yeah. you know, towards uh, like bail, bailing people out mm-hmm. or helping NAACP. It's, that part is a bit frustrating, but we're definitely not the kind of people who are protesting uh, to open the damn country again. Yeah. <laughs> I don't need super cuts yet.
0: I wanted to shift gears for a moment to ask about the book that Rachel wrote and illustrated, which is called She Can Lay It Down, 50 Rebels, Rockers, and Musical Revolutionaries Who Happen to Be Women. Uh, this was published worldwide last year. Uh, Rachel, what can you tell us about where that project began?
3: Yeah, so um, that, the genesis for the idea behind that book, I think it kind of started back in 2014, early 2015. Um, I was lucky enough to be introduced to an editor at Chronicle who Um, her name is Bridget and she was just very welcoming saying, you know, Hey, whenever you have an idea, if you ever have an idea for a pitch, I'd love to hear it. And so naturally kind of started racking my brain um, around that time. Uh, You know, coming up with a book idea is not a small feat, but I think in the months around that time, interestingly enough, I had sort of been thinking about, the void that existed in terms of um kind of a more a more accurate and real history of music um i had discovered the publication she shreds back in 2014 and i just found it really refreshing um i loved their perspective and the way they focused their content towards um woman identifying musicians without it feeling like you know an attention or culture grab type move. And yeah, I think discovering publications like that and then having that kind of prompt from Chronicle, uh, it sort of clicked in my brain like, hey, maybe there's something here. Um, And so, you know, a couple of years later, I finally uh, found the time to uh, sort of get materials together for the proposal. And I started, in, in that time, I started making lists of people in in the music world who maybe they were slightly known but not well enough, you know, people like Sister Rosetta Tharpe, um, Elizabeth Cotton, um, and so I I did sort of a small zine, and um, that was kind of the major part of my book proposal, which um, lo and behold became more like an actual book. Um, So, uh, that project was kind of in the mix during, uh, the time when we were also working on the album. So, yeah, it was a really intense few years. Um, but it, I think it actually had a great impact directly or indirectly on the album as well. Um, and it's just been a really rewarding project for me as a whole, just to see, um, it slowly spread you know i'm a first-time author and it's it's definitely kind of an underdog type of release but uh it's been really really cool and gratifying to see people connect with it um you know especially women and non-binary musicians so it's meant a lot to me
0: was it an easy process to choose the artists that you illustrated and wrote about for the
3: book uh, definitely not. That was that was probably among the hardest pieces of the process. Um, yeah, 50 might sound like a large number, but it's really not. Um, and in the book, I, I mentioned that it's it's definitely only a starting point, um, not a summation. Um, you know, it's you know I I joke that there could definitely be volumes and volumes of books like this, and it still wouldn't be enough.
0: You talked a little bit about not being able to practice at your practice space, but does this mean that you aren't writing any music right now, or is there anything you are been able to work on since you two are at home together?
4: Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, one thing that also uh, really helped us, this began towards when we were demoing uh, tracks for Lotus Eaters. Uh, our bandmate, Kevin, uh, he's also the tackiest and geekiest of us. He turned us on to using this uh, program called Reason. And that was an elevated way for us to actually remotely demo and swap files with each other, you know, like basically the digital equipment postal service. Um, So that's actually something we kept with us because, I mean, beforehand, it was pretty much me taking an H4 field recorder and throwing it into a nook in a space. You know, and then having to, like, listen to two hours or three hours of a band practice and, like, cut out the three minutes that were good and then tell everyone, oh, remember this. And it really wasn't that as productive as it could have been. So, basically, Reason has been this great way where, like, we can be in any space as long as we have a computer with a program. Rachel can plug in her guitar or a microphone. I can some drums. So, it's actually really helped us with songwriting in different ways because, In this time, it's really helped me structure and think about beats in a different light. And also, specifically during quarantine, uh, since I don't have my drums with me and I really don't want to play on, you know, with rubber sticks, I've been just on guitar a lot more. So we actually have been writing and finishing a bit of material. So it's our hope that eventually we can try to do a follow-up EP, whether we record this fall or winter, or really whenever it's safe. But the good part is we have been keeping up with writing because I think that's also something we definitely need as an outlet right now. Yeah.
0: If you want to follow what is going on with Phosphine, they are on Instagram at Phosphine underscore PDX, or you can follow them on Facebook where they are listed as Phosphine Band. And if you want to hear Lotus Eaters, the new album from Phosphine, which will be out next week on July 7th, you can pre-order the album now at phosphinepdx.bandcamp.com. Rachel and Matt of Phosphine, thank you so much for being on World of Noise today.
3: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us.
4: Yeah, it was awesome.
0: You've reached the end of another episode of World of Noise and the end of this show's brief run. Thank you to my guests, Kristen Granger and Bill Wetzel, and Rachel and Matt of Phosphine. And thank you for tuning in today. Again, I hope you've enjoyed the show over these past few months, and I hope you'll continue
2: to tune into X-Ray FM today and every day. Until next time, thanks for listening.